All right. Um, so welcome everyone to episode of the Accelerators podcast. Uh, we're so excited to have uh, the founders of Rover with us today, um, Jenna Khan and Archie Pollum. Uh, I'm Anna Lauschus, one of the Accelerators. Uh, we'll just go around and um, give our introductions that we uh, know uh, how we're speaking. And then uh, we'll talk about our favorite Thanksgiving food as well. I'm Samuel Break, one of the hosts, uh, medical director at Multicare in Tacoma, Washington. And I'm pretty classic when it comes to Thanksgiving. I, I like a, I like turkey and uh, I only pretty much like it during Thanksgiving. But if it's done well and the skin's crispy, dry brined and spatchcocked, I think that's a good bird and delicious on that day of the year. You posted a, tw- a picture of your of your turkey, didn't you? I think you did. Yeah. 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 It looked really Came good. Up. Thanks. Thanks. It was good. Turned out good. Uh, I, I guess I can go next. I'm Matt Spraker. I'm the, the other accelerator. Uh, uh, and uh, I am um, an assistant professor at Washington uh, University in St. Louis. Uh, and then I guess for my uh, Thanksgiving food, I, I'm going to go with uh, kind of a family comfort food, which is cornbread. We call it stuffing. I don't know if, if I think it's a Midwest term. So we will call it dressing. Uh, but it's basically like very similar to what you're, you're envisioning, but made from cornbread instead of instead of like white bread. So that's what I that's my favorite Thanksgiving food. I love that. I love cornbread dressing. That's delicious. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is, is this, is stuffing a Midwest term? Am I the only one that call, Oh, is my only one that calls it that? Or is we it call it stuffing. I'm from Michigan. Stuffing, but I don't usually use it with cornbread. Yeah. Yeah. We, I've learned that that's not like super common. So, but it's what you can give it a try. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. From Colorado, we called it stuffing as well. Um, definitely one of my favorites. Um, one of my favorite dishes that uh, my grandma used to make as well. And I'm uh, in the lounge is one of the other accelerators. Um, uh, now in private practice in uh, Wisconsin at uh, Green Bay Oncology. Really excited to have um, Jenna and Archie with us today. Great, I can go next. Um, I'm Archie Pollum. I'm an assistant professor at Stanford. Um, I love Thanksgiving food, um, but I guess my favorite would be stuffing as well. Um, I do cornbread stuffing as well as regular bread stuffing. We have a lot of gluten-free folks in my family, so... Um, hence the cornbread stuffing. And I'm Jenna Kahn. Um, I'm at Oregon Health and Science University. Um, I'm an assistant professor. And my favorite is, I also like stuffing, but I would add, I love the Costco pumpkin pie, which I recently learned is one of their like top sellers. Um, And it's definitely like always at our Thanksgiving. That sounds really good. I, I have a quick, quick comment. I, it's, I have a, um, a, an email list with a group of friends, like from college that was pretty active. And we, we email a lot, like kind of every day. Um, and we had this big discussion about how people don't like Turkey. I, I noticed that only one person kind of had, had Turkey as the food. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I'm sort of in that camp. I kind of like only eat it at Thanksgiving and, and I, and I kind of think it's, it's kind of like overrated. I don't know if that's a controversial statement or not, but. I think Turkey's hard because. Yeah. It ends up like it's hard to cook without it being dry, but I guess you mentioned the spatchcocking so that the legs, you know, cook more like with the breast. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's the problem. It Turkey is just ends up being dry. It's a, it's a big animal. It's a, you know, it's 15, 18, 20 pounds and to get the breast temperature high, you know, to get to cook the thighs through, you're going to overcook the breast. And that happens like routinely when you don't. Um, butterfly or spatchcock it. So yeah. Yours looks so you good. Do. We should link to it in the in the notes. <laughs> it looks so good on Twitter. Yeah, it was like everyone's Thanksgiving food. It was kind of fun. <laughs> um, oh. So should we we can dive in? I think and yeah, awesome. Yeah, um, we'd love to dive in and um, yeah, it's just starting off with would love to hear from you guys uh, the history of Rover and really how it all got started. I could start out and giving a little history of it. Um, well. In March of 2020, um, when when COVID hit, um, we all had to kind of switch and think about um, medical student clerkships. And so um, Stanford and OHSU were um, some of the first to do the virtual clerkships um, in radiation oncology um, for students. Um, And uh, Dr. Thomas, uh, my 
um, former chair and Dr. Gibbs um, were speaking and they connected uh, Archie and I. And that's how um, we started to talk about how we both had these virtual clerkships. And then we started thinking about how not everyone has that opportunity and how um, we could expand it to all medical students since a lot of them had no clerkships and nothing to do that summer. And we really wanted to bring oncology education to uh, medical students and give them the opportunity. Yeah. And part of it, I think when we were making our virtual clerkships, a lot of the discussion was, you know, how can we make this as good as an in-person experience? But then when Jenna and I were speaking, we're like, why don't we reframe it and say, you know, how can we kind of take advantage of the virtual platform and make it even better than in-person in some ways? And um, the better is kind of, you know, leveraging the increased connectivity with like Zoom and um, some of these other tools and, um, and um, you know, just increasing kind of our reach and um, increasing access to some of the add-on content to students. And so we were like, we have, you know, students rotating virtually with you. We have students rotating virtually at Stanford. Why don't we kind of do some sessions together with all of our students and at the same time, just open it up to everyone. So um, that was kind of the beginning of Rover. That's pretty cool. I think I, I one. I guess so. Kind of. It sounds like you you had like kind of concurrent projects going of doing virtual clerkships, and then I was actually just looking at your at your website while you were talking, and it seems like you sort of expanded to to like a a lot of different things, right? Because you have, I guess when when I when this sort of started, I thought it was kind of more like those lectures that you sort of had that where you'd have guest panelists kind of give lectures, and then I just noticed you also have like a thing for the meet the meet and greets. I think I actually remember being on the first one of the first ones. Is is uh it was that all just kind of happen organically or did you like did you have like were you trying to um, nail down specific areas that you were working on or were these just like all ideas that you both had and you kind of just did did all the things? We um, started with those educational panels like you discussed. Um, we had six of them that first summer, and so we were trying to do all the different disease sites um, across. So then. Um, medical students could get education from each one of those. But then we also wanted to integrate residents to help um, moderate and be part of um, Rover. And in those meetings, actually one of our, I think some two of the residents suggested, well, why don't you do like, like a large meet and greet? Because as the summer was progressing, um, a lot of institutions, I think Cleveland Clinic was the first to email and ask me if I could put up their meet and greet on the website. And so um, they put it, they asked to put it up. So then I put it up there and then everyone else was having meet and greets. So then we just kept adding. And I think we got to like 30 or 40 programs the first year. I didn't even count how many, but there were a lot. Yeah, I remember Jenna, you were like flooded with requests. You were like the webmaster that whole summer with like different yeah. messaging you. It's like, put put us on the website. We're having this like so-and-so when and when. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I didn't even know how to use a website or make a website. And it was, we were just, I was like, I think I can upload this to YouTube. Like, you know, everything needs to be in JPEG format. Just learning things off the cusp cuff, but really just having a central resource for students was kind of how I was thinking because just trying to follow all the Twitter posts and random Facebook posts, I think for medical students um, applying, I think would, would have been really difficult to keep up to date and know where to sign up for which meet and greet. Yeah. So I, I definitely think it was organic. And then in addition to the virtual meet and greets and then the six Rover medical student sessions, we also had that networking session that you mentioned, Matt, um, I, or was that what you were referring to? We had like one big networking session at the end of the summer for all these different programs and um, students to connect over Zoom with breakout rooms. Yeah, I remember that it was pretty fun, actually. I don't know if like I don't know if Anna, if you were if you were on it as a as kind of because you were graduating, right? So you were kind of like a or was you were heading into your last year. Right. Yes. I don't think I had, was able to join, but yeah, it seemed like a, a really awesome initiative. It was it was an interesting thing because I remember like 
people at that point were just like, you know, interviews was kind of like a shit show. Like people didn't really like know what to do. Right. Like they, like the students were super, super nervous about interviews and like appearing professional on zoom. And I remember a couple even talking about, um, you know, being worried that they would have like private space to interview, which I thought was, was like a really important perspective. And I've seen a lot of people talk about that more, more recently for this year, but it was something that kind of was interesting. And then like, and then in every room, like the flip of the flip of it was like the program directors or the people that were like from the programs that were faculty, like they were just like, we have no idea what we're doing (laughs) and we'll just like kind of see how it goes. And it seemed like it went okay for everyone, but it was just, it was very like a memorable thing about how nervous everybody was. And I think I tried to remember I tried to like share with the students that I met that like, at least at WashU, we were equally nervous. Like, I think everyone just kind of was so nervous about doing zoom interviews that I told, try to tell people like not to be really don't let that aspect kind of freak you out because I think that the program has kind of felt that way too. And it sort of, everyone was in it together. It was kind of an interesting thing. And it's, you know, it's really awesome to hear you guys talk about how all of this happened so organically. And yeah, I mean, looking at your website, it's so many different programs with, uh, you know, with the, the meeting grades kind of, you know, your website really became like a central hub um, for all of that. Um, so that's, you know, that's really awesome. Oh, um, we should give a shout out to the, our, we, so Jenna was able to get some assistance with um, web mastering duties. Jenna, did you want to give a yeah, shout so out to Utkarsh, Yeah, to Utkarsh and um, Ryan have really helped take over and taken the website to the next level. Um, and it looks much nicer than it did when I was fully in charge. So they just like offered a, like kind of off. I, I'm looking at your About Us page right now too. And they have like, they have nice pictures up there. And so we actually like had an applicant, a call for residents to um, help with the Rover program. Um, the first year we had three residents um, helping uh, moderate the sessions. And then um, this year we have four um, from different institutions. Um, and so they all have interest in education um, and have really been wonderful to work with all of them. Yeah, they've been great in terms of helping us with, you know, making cases or um, moderating the sessions, connecting with speakers and um, yeah, with their website skills as well. (laughs) I guess speaking of, um, you know, the resident involvement, I would love to hear from your perspective how Rover kind of evolved from, you know, really educational uh, initiative for med students to, you know, residents. With Rover 2.0? Yeah. So, I mean, Rover, we had over the summer. And then I think we had, we started having residents come to the Rover sessions. And a few residents reached out to us and said, This is great. We find it really educational to, you know, go to these sessions designed for med students. You know, you should consider doing something similar for residents. And so um, that's kind of how Rover 2.0 came about. We, um, just basically took the same format, um, made, made the cases a little bit more nuanced, um, and, uh, continued it throughout the academic year. Um, and initially last year, I think how many sessions do we have? I think we had nine Rover 2.0 sessions throughout last year. Um, again, just across like different disease sites, similar to Rover, Um, but this year we're doing something a little bit new. So we're changing up the curriculum a little bit and we can talk more about that, um, um, in a little bit, but I don't um, think that we've like gotten into exactly how the sessions, um, um, are structured, but, um, Rover is actually stands for radiation oncology, virtual education rotation. Um, and, We usually have uh, anywhere from four to seven faculty members from different institutions um, and uh, normally from academic institutions across the country. Um, We have a resident moderator and then three to five cases going through um, the workup, imaging, um, the treatment, and um, looking at the plan as well. Um, Through that, we also use poll questions so that it's interactive, so that students can, um, you know, uh, answer questions. And so they're 
engaged during it. And then there's lots of live chat and Q&A during that session. Yeah, and Rover 2.0 is similar. Um, it's just more gray zone cases. Um, and again, we have faculty from different um, institutions across the country um, going through the cases. And we try to kind of um, invite speakers from different parts of the country just so that we could have geographic diversity. Um, a lot of the feedback we got from the residents um, were that they really appreciated kind of the back and forth among the faculty panelists, um, um, kind of discussing how they would treat things differently or, or approach, you know, these gray zone cases differently, how they think about these cases. Um, and so um, for the Rover 2.0, I think we had like 500 unique residents um, participate in the sessions over the past year across 100, almost 150 um, institutions. So, and, and among those, you know, 20% were international. So um, pretty well attended. And that's you, a huge audience. <laughs> yeah. Did you, have, did you have like faculty from um, other countries log on or was it mainly trainees? Not, uh, sorry, not as panelists, but like as guests, like as people listening as in the audience. Yeah, I think we did have faculty. Um, I'm, I don't know what percentage off the top of my head, but yeah. You mentioned the international trainees participating as well. And it seems like that's one of the benefits to this platform is, you know, being able to reach those who you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach um, with the virtual platform. Yeah, exactly. And then we have the videos on our website for afterwards. So then um, those that can't make it because of time zones, um, they can watch those videos later on. I thought I've had it like, is that so much of this stuff is something that's like a standard of care nationally. And there, there isn't always like 10 ways to skin a cat. Is there a way to make this part of the curriculum for the, for the majority of programs? Um, or would you consider something like that? Because I always think like, why are 150 different faculty doing an intermediate risk prostate cancer lecture every single year? And whether that's a good use of time or if that's just something you stick on your CV and whether it really benefits the trainees. That's supposed to go on your CV. <laughs> like if you give a lecture. <laughs> I was told to do that at my old job. <laughs> so... Um, we've had this debate a few times and talked about it a lot um, because I do think that it does help programs that are smaller that might not have uh, a huge amount of faculty um, or a residency program that's smaller. It allows them to have more didactics instead of um, having all of the faculty having to give um, lectures on everything. Um, but it is still part of having a residency program is making sure that the residency program is providing education for their residents. Um, and we do still, you know, want residency programs to be providing them their education. Um, and so we have been feeling more that it's, it augments and helps the education. And so we hope that, you know, programs are using it to add to their education and not just so to supplement it and not to take over their education. Um, so that's right. why and we've done more cases instead of lecture style of intermediate risk prostate cancer. Yeah. And I, yeah, I get that. And it's just, I, I, I just think of like, so, you know, seeing, seeing the lectures and seeing what I went through a training and I know it's changed. It just seems that a lot of energy is spent at each program by the attendings and you guys are the three of you are academic attendings and probably have done that and spent hours making these slides and going through these talks and whether or not um that's just generation of work to fill time or whether it really is um effective for the trainees to have you know every single place do it a different way i just i i, I really am interested in like early childhood education and small kids and also like intermediate education just when you think of things like the Khan Academy, which has the lectures and has these things already in libraries online and people can watch them. And then the teacher, the, you know, the, the didactic person at your residency can do more nuts and bolts, more practical learning, more like 
uh, caveats and things like that. And so that, that's kind of the way I think about the way we can democratize education and really you know, add value over, you know, over the course of four years of training. There's actually, yeah, that is a, it's a really good point because I think that it's, I, I don't, my guess is that I would, I'm not alone in thinking like you, that there's just, there's, I actually think there's probably like too much in the way of didactics at most programs. I mean, I, I felt that way in, in my residency program and um, the one here at WashU is pretty similar where they do a lot of uh, didactics um, kind of every year in blocks. And it's a lot of time spent in lecture and, and kind of time out of clinic. Um, and I think that it's, it's um, y- y- you make a really good point. And then what I think what gets missed a lot is you spend so much time kind of like orally reviewing the book chapter, right? And you you do a lot less of like, what do you do when a guy shows up and his prostate is huge and you want to do SBRT versus brachy versus whatever. And, you know, and like that kind of stuff is, is I feel like you learn so much of that as a new attending that it, it would be cool to like move it up. And, and I think you make um, you, what you're kind of speaking to a little bit is uh, when I was at uh, UW, uh, Eric Ford there was like a really uh, prominent kind of educator in our department and a very talented educator. I think at this point, probably a lot of people um, kind of know who he is. Um, but he used to talk a lot about a flipped classroom where you, you basically do the lecture on your own time. Uh, and he would, he did this, he'd keep them very short. Um, I actually think, I think now it's a, a textbook, but when I was a resident, it was kind of like a pilot effort where he made these like lectures on video and they had like some personality and they were pretty short and they were kind of fun to watch. And then you'd come to the classroom and you would do like problems together in class. So, so you spend your time like doing the stuff that you have to execute on, which is like taking boards and passing. And then you just do the lecture stuff, like kind of when it's convenient for you or when you learn best. Um, You could see Rover like kind of being a springboard for that, for potentially a smaller program um, where they might not have, uh, where they might leverage that to kind of spend more time in clinic, a little less time, less time. lecturing. Yeah. I mean, cause your stuff's so high quality that's, you know, and it's, it's engaging and that's, that's super important. And to be able to use that on your own time and then take advantage of your faculty on site in a different way. I don't know. It just, it seems like that hybrid would be really great. I just, I, I'm just impressed by what you guys do. So just the idea of nationalizing it in some way. A lot of our our webinars, our, our sessions, aren't as much on the all the data and all the studies. A lot of it is more towards that practical, how you approach a lot of these cases. Um, and so um, I tend to think of it as, you know, in med school when you're, you do small group learning instead, and that's where a lot of med school is going towards is like practicing. Um, and that's really where we're trying to, you know, plug in some of that, um, and instead of doing like straight didactic lecture style, it'd be more fluid. Yeah. And even this year, you know, we're adding kind of newer content. Um, we're partnering with some, um, different organizations like, um, ARS, so we just had um, an, a nearing the end zone, like, um, you know, work, uh, uh, session on your CV cover letter job talk. Um, so that was done in collaboration with ARS. That was one of our recent Rover 2.0 sessions. And then um, in November, we had another session on just palliative care. Um, we had Josh Jones and um, Candace Johnstone and Zach Kahudak um, uh run that that session so um kind of and then we have some other things um coming up like one on safety um one on oligometastatic disease um so um and brachytherapy yes and brachytherapy and that one's with abs so yeah i was just looking at that you're going to cover all of brachytherapy in one session (laughs) (laughs) if only (laughs) if only we could do that in an hour (laughs) Yeah, I saw your topics for Rover 2.0 or upcoming ones. They they all look really, really good. Those are on the website too. We can kind of point people to them. Um, yeah, yeah, we just wanted to kind of branch out beyond just going again, you know, through kind of the different cancer sites and uh, uh, cover some some additional stuff. 
And it seems like a great idea to partner with some of the specialty societies to um, and, you know, introduce um, participants to those too, if they're not as familiar. So that's great. Part of it is that there's a lot of institutions, I don't know about you all, but I feel like there's webinars constantly all the time and I want to go to all of them, but there's a lot of siloed, each group has their own webinars. And so we really want to collaborate with all of them so that we can um, bring it together and kind of, it's the, you know, it's the same community just in different organization, but so bringing them all together to do that. Have you considered um, like making it multidisciplinary? Because that's always tough is to get the medonc or the surgeon to talk, uh, to find time for our residents or our fellows. Um, and maybe if, if it's, again, nationalized like this, that we could take advantage of the top medoncs and surgeons to help us learn as well. Yeah, for sure. Jenna and I were just talking about that. So far, it's all been radiation oncologists, but I think in future iterations, it would be great to um, bring other specialties in. And I don't know if you've noticed at your institutions, but I feel like with everything going virtual, it's been easier to get other specialties to just give talks within our departments or to our residents. Like they don't have to make the trek, you know, from the other end of the hospital. It's they can just hop on Zoom. So I, I think similarly, we should take advantage of that for this. Yeah, and it leads itself to like a debate on tours for oil fairings versus radiation and, you know, um, all different types of uh, discussions between different disciplines. Yeah. And I think it can also just increase our reach as well. Maybe a student, a med student who thought they were interested in surgery and comes to the session and hears the radiation oncologist speak, you know, we could potentially get, get some of them interested in our field as well. And I think that's a great idea and in a way that would parallel some of the multidisciplinary rotations that are out there too. Um, I know that uh, we have these at University of Michigan where I trained where, like for example, a, um, uh, like a neuro rotation involving neurosurgery, uh, going to pathology and coming to radiation oncology and really kind of seeing um, you know, all sides of the, uh, of, you know, the uh, specialty. Um, so I think it's great to to get those perspectives. And yeah, there's some areas, uh, especially talking about kind of nuanced treatments um, where, you know, seeing where there may not be kind of a, um, you know, definite approach, but really hearing the perspectives from everyone. Um, and yeah, introducing medical students to radiation oncology when they may not have known about it. I mean, it's another valiant effort too. Uh, ha- having joined this new community practice, we we're associated with a, uh, medical school. And uh, I've never had so many medical students as I've had at this position. They, they keep coming and none of them want to do radiation oncology. They're just interested in learning. And um, I think that's fascinating. And the questions they ask are very different and the behavior is very different. There's not like this, I hate saying this, but like sucking up, trying to get, you know, they're not trying to get a position. They're just literally there to learn radiation oncology, a little bit about it. And you know, my, my whole spiel is if you learn one thing, know that the side effects are in the area that we treat. And if you remember that, then I'm good to go. But <laughs> that being great. said, um, you know, I, I, I think like educating other residents or other students about what we do without the intention of getting you interested in the field, but just this is the basics of what we do. If you know this, you'll know when to call us. You'll know, you know, kind of like toxicity stuff. And I, I think maybe that may be something to consider down the road as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had, there was some study like where they surveyed, I don't know, Jenna, if, uh, like they surveyed uh, um, non-radonc physicians and very uh, a shockingly low number, even knew, you know, of our specialty or what we did. So um, I'm in, are, are those students interested in oncology or are they just... Uh, I think there's kind of an issue, I mean, a couple of issues. Like they'd never had a radiation oncology uh, a, uh, rotation available. So this is, I was the first one to accept students. And the second thing is it's, it's, uh, it's like a regional osteopathic school. So the rotations are kind of spread out. And so it sometimes becomes a little bit difficult to schedule. So this adding a new option becomes somewhat popular. It's like people are tired of kind of doing the same electives with the same people. And so this is why that this is happening here. So like every few weeks, like every few weeks I have somebody now and I don't have a residency. I don't have a job firm. I don't, you know, I don't have anything from, but I'm just there to 
have them help out. And I think I don't have any resources right now for them other than just throughout the day talking, but, uh, and I don't have any time to give a lecture, but it would be nice to, if there was some prepackaged thing I could have gave them before they started the radio the rotation. I have some I can give you. Oh, that'd be awesome. Videos. And so I think you do too, right, Archie? Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. For our virtual clerkship, we have some intro videos or just yeah. send them to our website. <laughs> yeah. They're actually, oh, I had some in the, I had some in the website somewhere. I'll let you know. Um, but, um, you know, our students, our virtual students, um, I've noticed, and even in person, we do a lot of, we let them have access to Eclipse and the contouring. Um, and that's actually where they like really love to like contour and they have no idea where the heart starts and stops and um, all those little intricacies of trying to figure out what's bowel or what's part of the liver. Um, they, they love spending the time actually getting to do that. Um, and I've been talking with like our radiology department of, you know, maybe making a joint um, uh, rotation because it kind of helps them learn anatomy as well. And so you have a fun way to really solidify the anatomy too, like where it's very, you're just talking about kind of making it interactive and hands-on. And that seems like a really excellent way to do that, literally hands-on. Yeah, that's a really, that's actually a really cool idea. I've never, I don't, I've never, I don't know if you've ever said that like formally or if I'm just putting words in your mouth now, but, but actually linking the, the, the specialty, like, cause everyone, you know, there's this like discussion of, we have it on our sheet here and I'm sorry, and I don't want to step on your toes, but, but the, the, the way like to integrate in the med school kind of curriculum. Right. And it's actually, that's like a really clever way to kind of, um, to kind of think about that, because I think that you, it really does make you learn anatomy really well, or uh, you know, or not, we, I guess, uh, I don't know if you all saw the, the C3RO thing with breast, but I was going to comment that like a lot of practicing radiation colleges clearly, uh, uh, apparently don't know where the heart starts and stops. There's a lot of variation on that one, I think on the, on that episode, but, but, um, it, that's really cool. Cause I think it, it does force you to really think in a very detailed way about the anatomy that you like otherwise wouldn't maybe with the exception of when you're like dissecting a cadaver. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cross-sectional anatomy I've noticed with the students is very, very limited, especially, you know, third years, some of the fourth year, fourth years seem to be decent at it, but, um, I like that idea of a lot of linking it. And it's so important, right? Looking at the CT scan, remember your like intern year medicine, sometimes they never open up the scan to look at the, um, image and it's sometimes because they're not as comfortable with it. So perhaps, you know, and the more you look at it, the more you, feel comfortable with it. And so that's what I sometimes tell the students is my goal is for you to see like, oh, that's a lymph node or those are vessels um, and trying to really feel comfortable with that and feel like the next time you see a scan that comes in, then you open the image and look at it. Oh, you know what you could even, you know, I just thought of, you could even have them come and like contour all of your bowel for you for, for SBRT cases. It's like a learning <laughs> exercise, right? Oh, that's genius. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really we're not going to really do that but yeah no, yeah it's I, I agree it's really clever because uh if you if you're able to introduce it like couple it with anatomy you could get into the curriculum early which is one of the issues i feel like med students don't get exposure to our field early enough um and then the other issue that we have at stanford i the curriculum is just so competitive to get into um, there's no space. Um, so yeah, thinking of ways to integrate red onc like that. And, and I think we should actually probably just make a quick comment that there, cause this, cause that statement about pushing radiation oncology into the med school curriculum, um, often, uh, tr triggers people because, because I think there's a lot of, um, you know, like tension around, um, yeah. the number of residency spots and like recruiting and, and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point in the spring, but, but I think the, the, you, someone said it, that it's a really good point to just expose people because yeah. if you could just like, most of those people are not going to go into radiation oncology. And if you can just make like all of medicine, just stop saying weird stuff about radiation or like stop yeah. just like making assumptions. I think a lot of it is just lack of exposure. Right. So, so that alone, I think should really be a big motivation. Um, and I know like, I mean, similarly, you're, you're someone who's pretty vocal kind of against like actively 
you know, kind of pushing, like everyone should go into radon kind of thing, but you're like hosting students, which I think you're, you're probably doing it for those reasons. And I think it's a really uh, good thing to do, even if that's the way you feel about the current situation with training. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the part I, I feel like I have to be very repetitive on social media that I love this specialty and I love this field. I just don't think we have to say it, uh, recruit everybody and make it a point to pick Ident, you know, different identities to join. Like, if you're interested in racial oncology, do it. That that's about all I have to say. It's a great field, but I'm not going to target specific people or different organizations or different types of, you know, candidates for that for that reason. That it's a zero sum game. You pull somebody out of, you know, one specialty to put them in another, and you know, in my opinion, we have too many of us. So, um, you might have you might have lost an excellent family practice position because you told them to go into racial oncology. You take some bright kid. Um, and teach them how to treat prostate cancer in 44 fractions. And I'm not sure if that's the best deal for society. Um, so, you know, but yeah, no, I, I, I'll say it again. I love this specialty. It's awesome, but you don't have to join it to contribute or learn about it. Can, can I add, I wanted to, we didn't talk about this in advance, but I wanted to actually add a, a question if I could, just, it's kind of a semi related topic to what we were talking about kind of before integrating in medical education is there's um what's so you you have leveraged what's i think really really cool about about um you know 2021 like it's kind of a silver lining that it sort of forced people to become comfortable with virtual learning and, and kind of being distanced um and then there's all these new technologies that are coming out so i think it at like the rockstick last year there was a person that was like developing a vr um simulation of of, of breaky or sim or something like that. Um, are you all looking at like kind of pushing off of, um, zoom style, like sessions, whether they're didactics or panels or whatever it is, but into other things that, um, or is it really, uh, kind of for now, is it really just kind of like, you know, um, distance learning and sessions that way? You don't have to share if it's a, like a, if you're working on something that you don't want to reveal, <laughs> we can just move on. If it's <laughs> Right now, we've been just doing education and um, sticking to the the virtual format, but we're always open to new ideas and expanding. Um, we hadn't thought about it yet, but again, we're collaborating with um, different people, and you know, we're always open. It would be cool to work, you know, with Econtour, or you know, start to you know integrate something of that aspect as well as part of our sessions. Yeah, and I think it's it's a it's adjacent education, but um, Econtour, you know, we've spoken to uh, those folks and with you guys. Like, I, my my passion is a, a lot of like quality improvement and peer review, and I wonder if there's there's something I talk to a lot of uh, people that are starting their jobs. They're they're solo practitioners or what you know one doc shops, and they wonder like how how am I going to get peer reviewed adequately? And you know, are my plans any good? Am I doing a good job? And is there a way to like integrate Econtour and what you guys are doing to, you know, not that your mission needs to be to help community doctors practice medicine, but, you know, if, 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 if somebody young takes it, you know, inexperienced takes a job, what, what do they do? I mean, you, how many times can you email your program director or your, your faculty about cases um, and who's helping you during chart rounds and who's that, you know, they, they'll blind the doctor that practices alone is never wrong. And, um, you know, that, that is a problem. Uh, that I think that exists in a lot of our smaller shops. <laughs> I can just add that there's a, there's actually a program through Astro. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. It's like a buddy system kind of thing where they, where you can like sign up to be an expert or whatever, and people can reach out to ask you about cases or things. Uh, I, I have no idea how that's actually, Jenna, maybe you have an idea of how that's going, but I, I actually signed up to be sarcoma and no one's ever contacted me. And on the other hand, um, I've had like on, on the order of five or 10 people reach out through Twitter to actually ask me about a case. Um, uh, so it's just interesting that that's kind of the way that people find each other, but. I, I've logged into the chartrounds.org, uh, which I think is a wonderful program where you can send in cases and there's different experts about that. Um, that's separate from Astro. I don't know how the Astro program is going, but I don't know. I do know that there's the chart rounds one. Um, and people from all over the world call in, I believe. Yeah, I, I did chart rounds when it first started. It, it is very good. Uh, I think there's a cost to it now, or 
I'm, I'm not sure so just to keep the site up and going, but there's yeah. Reiki therapy as well. They have it. And I think it's maybe sponsored through ABS that part. So I watched some of those. We could be, we could be even a little more general and just generally ask what, what, uh, what's, what are plans for the future for Rover? Yeah. I think that was on, that was. Yeah. I think we touched upon some of it. Um, we definitely want to start getting, folks from other specialties um, involved as panelists. Um, what else, Jenna? We're starting to do, we did these summer sessions to begin with oh, because the medical students, you know, at first were at home. We noticed this past summer, um, the attendance was not as high because we think everyone's back in rotations. Um, and we kind of want it. And so it all depends on what rotation you're in. Um, if you can't go the whole summer, then, and that's the only times we have the med student ones, then that's not great. So we're trying to, um, integrate residents and medical student topics. So a lot of these topics could be for residents or medical students, um, and so that they can come year round. Um, and then we may, um, also start to put in some more medical student talks, um, throughout the year as well. Um, we're thinking of maybe having residents submitting like challenging cases, kind of like what you're talking about. Maybe we could integrate that to the community physicians to submit um, challenging cases that residents could watch. And also it could be kind of a peer review and discussion about cases. Um, that be that would be an interesting way to do it. Um, and we really want some more global outreach. Um, we know that um, the education in the US, um, there's been a lot of focus, um, but we also want to be mindful and um, you know, open that up to um, our global partners. Uh, I, I was gonna say like the, the idea about challenging cases being presented, we, we tend to be very diligent with our challenging cases and ask a friend and ask a colleague and look up stuff. While um, my, my program director at UPMC, Dr. Bearwell, who's no longer at UPMC would say like, that's, that's fine, but what about the routine cases? That's the ones you flip through very quickly. You may not look at it in detail because in your mind, it's routine. And so he was always big on, um, in his, uh, uh, we had this program called E-Rounds. It was excellent. It was a weekly case review. And he would say, don't submit a challenging case, just submit something simple and routine, because that way we can go into the nuts and bolts of what you're going to see every day in practice and make sure you understand the nuances. And I, I always think that's a good way to do this, really do take a look at some of the occasionally review a early stage breast and make sure that we know all, you know, everything about it and um, are comfortable with that. So it's something to keep in mind. I think like that's the chart rounds. Everyone brings in their re-irradiation case or their, um, you know, third oligometastatic SVRT or whatever, instead of, um, you know, again, an intermediate risk prostate cancer where you might forget that there are nuances. So true. I, I always, you know, I'm in my starting my third year of practice and my first year I thought, man, everything is a challenging case because there's so many nuances to everything. I'm sure Anna, that you could talk and speak to that, that, you know, mm -hmm. you, you think about everything and, you know, it just an intermediate prostate is not just an intermediate prostate. You're like hemming and hawing. If maybe they need ADT, maybe they don't. Um, and thinking about your margins and there's so many things that you could, um, you know, think about in depth because of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of palliation, palliation and think like a bone mat, a spine mat, one, a lesion and T6 dose. You know, there's so many ways where people give dose. They do 30 and 10, they do 20 and five, they do an SBRT dose. Do you treat the vertebra above and below? Do you use image guidance? I mean, all this stuff kind of matters and you just, I don't know, we, we kind of wrote and call this like, uh, this is simple, this is simple, but this is still important and there's good ways to do things and there's bad ways to do things and there's in between ways to do things. And I think like people like Candace Johnson, you guys mentioned earlier for palliative care, like I've read her book. It is fantastic. It like really helps me. And I think the things that we think are routine, like palliation are not always that way. Yeah, I think palliative cases can be some of the most challenging. What's her book? I was just looking it up. <laughs> and our um, 
I would say you should watch our palliative care session because she did go through all of this and it was a really great, wonderful talk of kind of talking about those nuances. I think the video is up on the website, right? From November, we can check. We'll ask our webmasters. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially nowadays, even going beyond in our specialty, you know, the patients that are now in a number of newer systemic agents, you know, whether to hold those or not while undergoing palliative radiation uh, and, yeah, just routine cases uh, can bring up, you know, essentially, yeah, especially being new in practice now, really thinking about every aspect of that patient's care, um, kind of bringing it all together uh, certainly is, yeah, it makes every case kind of a, a challenging case, but um, so encouraging to, to hear you say that as well. Um, so I guess uh, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but just was really interested in uh, your guys' perspective. Uh, we've uh, talked through a number of the really exciting initiatives that uh, that you guys are doing with, with Rover and collaborations with um, specialty societies. I just wanted to ask you guys, where do you see the future of radiation oncology education going? You want me to start? Um, cool. Um, I think the future of um, radiation oncology education, um, I, I really do think integrating um, more of our anatomy, making sure that we are part of, you know, these multidisciplinary electives um, and um, continuing to be available, um, you know, being part of like, med student, the first years, they're, you know, rotate their doctoring experience being like clinicians and showing them, um, you know, we are oncologists as well. Um, I'll let Archie. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> but yeah, I think those are those are like, I mean, that makes like a lot of sense, right? Because I think that's probably the biggest unmet need, you know, there's still it's still really hard to find this field, which, you know, makes it difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you guys are at the forefront is virtual, <laughs> virtual education, I think is going to be a big part of residency training in the future. And I, I think it's, it's, it's so great like that, that you guys are doing it. Um, and we have a model for this in the future. I think like if I was, if I was going to start a residency program, I would call you guys up and say, I want to partner with you. And, um, figure out a way to make that happen. So we get the best of the best, you know, why, why should it be limited to, to me and my squad of five people? Are you, are you announcing starting a residency program? I, <laughs> just, to add, just to add to all of that, um, before I started laughing, I would um, be crucified. Uh, I would be crucified. <laughs> It'd be like the biggest betrayal. <laughs> With virtual education, um, there's so much that we can do. I mean, I I really want to make a curriculum and education for nursing and radiation oncology for mid-levels, um, for, you know, it's not just medical students and residents. Um, and I think that we really do need to continue to educate, um, not only um, right in you know, those people right in front of us and our patients, but also um, our peer providers as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we're continuing to like make videos and making virtual education be uh, available for everyone. Yeah. And adding to that, I think we've also talked about, you know, targeting residents of other specialties and um, faculty of other specialties, just so they can learn more about radiation oncology. Yeah, like how cool would it be if, you know, a few radonks um, gave a talk on gynecologic cancer to a, a, a few different institutions of OBGYN residents mm -hmm. um, and like being available for them in that aspect because other um, residency programs do have to learn and do you know, we would like them to be exposed so then they, as Simone and um, Matt and everyone have said, we need um, them to also um, understand when to call what um, is important and so we can be more accessible in this virtual environment. I think those are all uh, really exciting future directions and yeah, I agree that you know, it's really important to understand the ways in which our field 
interacts with uh, with other fields, as well as uh, all of the providers who are taking care of patients in the clinic. There's a lot of um, specialized care, so really great to kind of pull all of that together. Uh, so I think we're towards the end here, um, but I guess as our calm down, I just wanted to um, get a thought on what everyone's holiday plans are and if anyone has anything exciting around the corner. Turkey. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> or stuffing. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I'm not taking any time off in December, unfortunately. We're short-staffed due to some labor issues, but we're going to go to Cabo in January in the first week. I've never been there and we're not beach people, but I am exhausted and I cannot wait to just sit around the ocean and have guacamole and spend time with my kids and wife. <laughs> um, I am celebrating Hanukkah right now because it's early this year. Um, and then I'm taking off some days at the end of December to go to a wedding in Nashville, which I think will be fun to see some friends. Um, I think I'm on call. Um, and all my kids are out of school, so my husband might kill me, but we'll try to survive. <laughs> I'm uh, Nashville is super fun, by the way. Just as like a, as a, it's sort of close to here, so we've gone before, and um, I, I hadn't been there uh, in a long time. And it's it's people call it um, Nash Vegas now. I don't know. <laughs> There's yeah. like a street or two. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, it's a wedding on New Year's Eve, so um, I'm sure I can get you in. You could be a wedding crasher. <laughs> you don't have plans. No, we're actually going to be. Um, we're we're act- this is a, a last minute uh, thing. We we booked a like a cabin up in um, right by the Indiana Dunes, but it's in um, Michigan, so it's in like Southwest Michigan, um, which I quickly realized is like reverse Chicago. It's like on the other side of Lake Michigan, kind of right at the same kind of um area and so it's going to be freezing i'm sure but um i haven't been to the dunes since it's been a national park so i'm kind of i heard it's like super nice now when i went when i was younger it was like you know not not very nice um and then there's like all this stuff there and and so i think it'll be really nice to get away and i i agree with some of that i'm just like uh we should just give like a shout out to everyone that's exhausted because i think it just sort of feels like everybody is so maybe just we can just say that um, you know, uh, we, we hope that, you know, you can make it through and, and then, um, have a really nice holiday. And I'm kind of just hoping with like a couple weeks off where things are super slow, like over Christmas and new year's that people come back a little refreshed and hopefully it gets a little better. Cause it's, it's been, I know, I know it's been tough for a lot of people kind of across institutions, uh, and practices just like everywhere. So. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that, Matt. I think that's really important to just keep in perspective with everything going on with still the pandemic, unfortunately, but um, good that hopefully each of us will have some time with family and uh, for the holidays. And yeah, I'll be visiting family um, out here in the Midwest and Indiana. So excited for that. Um, But yeah, just really want to give a big thanks to Jen and Archie for joining us today. Really exciting to talk about Rover and Really exciting to uh, excited to see um, everything ahead that you guys have planned. So thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. That that ends our builders uh, series, and uh, we want to thank you all for listening to all of our innovators and builders in radiation oncology. See you next time.